This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed! Bitch! Gangsters, what's up guys? What's the grant to a motherfucker like me? Can you please remind me? Get the world by the tail! Fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Cute as shit. Oh, 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 skip, skip, skip. If you don't chew big red, then f you. That's so horny. Could you imagine if I hit the old water pipe with that thing? Oh. Great cash, homie. Three, two, one, let's fuck! Everybody's got to hear the shit on W Balls, W Balls, W Balls. It is, um, it is your host, Sam LaCrosse, back of the, the host of the new Listen to this podcast, back with another episode this week. Can you dig it? I can. So, this week has been a fucking drag. It's been an absolute fucking drag. I, um, it is, I have been so tired. I don't know why it has been. Maybe it's just because I am so, um, I, I honestly don't know. Like, I mean, I've been so tired. Like, I mean, it's just, I just, I mean, it's probably the lack of sleep, honestly. Like, I haven't really gotten that much sleep at all this week. I don't think I've gotten more than about six hours the whole the whole of this week. I maybe got like seven on Thursday night. But, and like even like yesterday, I went and go, so I'll, I'll get to this in a minute. I went to go see a movie for the first time in about two years, which is really, really exciting because I love movies, if you can't tell. And, um... It was, uh, you know, but I was, I was just limping through, you know, some of the parts of the movie. When I was in the movie, it was fine, but like getting up to the movie, I didn't think I was going to make it through the whole fucking thing. So, um, yeah, so went to the movies yesterday and saw the Many Saints of Newark, the uh, Sopranos prequel. I was very, very excited to go see it. Um, it was very mid-tier, I thought. It, it wasn't, like, maybe I'll just have to digest some, some more. I'll probably rewatch it once. Um, but I thought it was very, very... Like, I hate using this word. It was very mid, to be honest with you guys. It was very, very mid. And I, you know, I don't know what it was. I think it was just, I don't know, maybe I was expecting too much. Maybe I, I will read my post on expectations. I don't know. So we'll have to, uh, we'll have to see how that, you know, one works out. But I, I would still go see it. I mean, it, it was definitely still worth the time, particularly since I haven't been to a theater. I went on a really incredible run the last time I went because 2019 was such a great year for, for interesting movies, in my opinion, because I went from... Uncut Gems to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood to um, to Joker. Joker was the last one I saw. I saw it in, in I, I believe it was, yes, I believe it was December of 2019 before the world went to hell. And um, I, this is my first time back in theater. It was great. You know, I snuck fucking, you know, I whatever into the theater. And I had like, you know, the, the, you know the thing like the Reese trail mix, unhealthy shit. I, I got some of that and I snuck it in there. And, you know, the people were very, very nice and, you know, it was, it was full and, you know, wanted to help, you know, support those people because those things have just been taken behind the woodshed these, this past two years, 18 months, really. So it was nice to get back in there. But today we are going to be talking about, um, talking about decay, I think is the big theme of this post decay. And I've been doing a lot of culture and society stuff recently. I was looking at my trends, my categories on my, on my podcast posts, and I was just kind of you know, a little bit, you know, I was, I was like, well, okay, like, why am I doing so many of these things? Maybe it's just because it's been hitting me in the face recently, but I, I don't know why I've been doing a lot of these things. This one's really long. I, I really, really kind of wanted to flush this out because I have been thinking about this topic for, for some time, really. And I wanted to, uh, you know, make sure that I was doing it. It's proper justice and making it right. So without further ado, let's just kind of get into it. So if you're like most people, you probably don't spend your time reading about the history of the French monarchy. For most of history, it's a boring and drab subject. France, in essence, has never really been that important. Rather, they're usually the butt of the joke. They were the red-headed stepchild to England and Spain during the Golden Age of Europe. Their intellectuals are frequently mocked and smeared. They appeased Hitler. And in the present day, their lampoon is cowardly and weak. My dad does it all the time. And a lot of it is justly deserved, in my opinion. But I would also give the French a little more credit. History has a tendency of repeating itself. And there are a lot of lessons that it can teach us if we choose to observe carefully and honestly enough. For the specific moment I want to mention, we're going to go to the time slightly after the redheaded stepchild period, 
and concurrent with the kind of shitty intellectual period. During that time, two revolutions were happening in the world around the same period. One was happening in America, the other in France. One created the greatest nation the world has ever seen, unleashing unprecedented amounts of increased living standards, social tolerance, and wealth that the world had never before seen. The other destroyed a then-great nation to nothing, slayed an entire ruling class of leaders and rulers, committed internal genocide, mostly by guillotine, across its citizenry, and was eventually so broken that the only one that could, quote, fix the problem was below a below-average height military general who then burned half of Europe to the ground. You can guess which one fared better in the polls during those years. The French Revolution is the most terrifying non-authoritarian dictatorial political movement of modern times. We all did our due diligence by forcing ourselves to pay attention in history class, but thankfully our teachers spared us from the horror. Other than those times that we were learning that hair grows on our balls when Les Miserables somehow made Wolverine the star of an outstanding French musical, we really didn't know much about it, and we still don't. But like all revolutions, they didn't just start with the revolution itself. They started much before then, in a time where no one thought something as horrible as this could happen. I think an appropriate time to place our starting point would be in the year 1661. In that year, King Louis XIV took power over France from Cardinal Jules Mazarin, an Italian diplomat who was ruling the country by proxy. Upon seizing power, Louis reinstated the divine right of kings. The ancient law dating back centuries had stated the monarchy of a particular nation had the right from whatever god they prayed to to rule a nation unopposed. He effectively centralized government and political power, so it all went through him. Gone were the days of feudal lords. A new era was upon us. King Louis XIV would hold power for a whopping 72 years until his death in 1715, the longest of any monarch in recorded world history. This is a pretty big shift. Anytime you go from a somewhat democratic government to an inherently authoritarian one, the feeling in that particular nation shifts. The citizens automatically feel disempowered, as they should. Their ability to participate in the government is effectively reduced to zero at the local level. Shut up and obey, their leaders tell them. But what King Louis XIV did wasn't just big. It was revolutionary. He did not choose to rule by simple monarchy. Instead, he chose another form, one that had never been tried in the history of the developed world. He chose, instead, to rule by aristocracy. Louis XIV didn't want to be a king. Louis XIV wanted to be a god. But not just a god. He wanted to be a, the god of gods, like Zeus among his 11 others who ruled Olympus in Greek mythology. To do that, he needed to fill those other seats. Louis XIV scoured the country far and wide for the best of the best to surround himself with, including other politicians, intellectuals, businessmen, royalty, and many others who wanted to participate in this new form of aristocratic excess. He also needed a Mount Olympus. To accomplish this goal, he crafted the Palace of Versailles. The Palace of Versailles is cited by many as the most ambitious architectural endeavor in the history of the modern world. What was once a simple hunting lodge soon became a 70-year funhouse for the French elite. It included, among other things, a chapel, an opera house, and a farmyard village for the queen. It cost 25% of the national budget of France to construct it during that time period. When they inevitably ran out of money, they just borrowed more. Many French laborers died during its construction. King Solomon of Saudi Arabia's expansion of the Great Mosque of Mecca is largely recognized as the most extensive building project ever undertaken with a ridiculous cost of $100 billion in modern money. When the Palace of Versailles was finally finished, the price tag in today's dollars was $300 billion. Mount Olympus had effectively finally been brought to Earth. King Louis XIV did something remarkable when he reorganized the French government. He created the first ruling class. No longer was power to be centralized in a democracy, republic, or even a monarchy. From now on, power in France was to be held by the elite, by the people that, quote, deserved it, by the people that were, in their opinion, the best to lead France into the future. Their social status would be their buffer and their bludgeon for the future of their nation. But something else remarkable happened as well. The citizens of France were confused. These people who were proclaiming to be their betters, in their opinion, weren't all that impressive. Sure, they thought about cool things and were members of powerful families. What value did they provide to the nation of France? What individual capacity did they have to assert themselves over the, quote, other people? Who gave them the right to seize absolute power over the control of the state? They never got answers. They simply had to shut up and take it. 
there's an economic concept called the Matthew Principle that derives from a section in the Bible of the book of Matthew. To those who have nothing, more will be given. From those who have nothing, more will be taken. Or, to, or rather, quote, to those who have everything, more will be given. From those who have nothing, more will be taken. End quote. And slowly but surely, this is what happened in the nation of France over the next 100 years. The aristocracy ascended into a life of decadence and luxury, while the common citizens descended into a life of despair and poverty. Soon there was a definitive caste system in place, with two defined castes, the bourgeoisie and the proletariat, the elite and the not-elite, the haves and the have-nots. Outside of the gated and gilded walls of the Palace of Versailles, the nation of France descended into hell. Descended into hell. The streets were filthy. People didn't have clean water. Crime ran rampant. People were starving to death. Disease was commonplace and claimed the lives of the most vulnerable, particularly young children. They found no respite in the church because they were loyal to the bourgeoisie. They didn't have the time for the patience for lesser people. The government, run about as inefficiently as possible, obviously did not plan for these things. So they isolated themselves further. Better to ignore a scary problem than to solve it. Amazingly, the French citizenry still took it. They still shut up. They still obeyed their betters. Until one thing changed absolutely everything. There is a legend in the lore of this era that goes something like this. People of the proletariat were lining up in front of the Palace of Versailles to receive food. They were starving, and they were desperate for something to eat. The only problem was that the government had run out of bread. They had nothing to give their own people to prevent them from dying of starvation. Marie Antoinette, the Queen of France and husband to King Louis XVI, was watching from her perch in the palace. An aide frantically rushed over to her, telling her that they had run out of bread to feed the citizens and asking what they should do. Antoinette's response would forever live in infamy as the epitome of privileged elitism. Quote, Let them eat cake. End quote. Let them eat cake. So, I'll give it, let that sing in for a second. The French people, her people, were wasting away like vermin in the streets. Marie Antoinette didn't simply just not care. That would have been one thing. Instead, she revealed her true feelings. Indifference. She didn't care whether they lived or died, if they suffered or not. As long as she and the rest of her class were okay, she was fine with whatever happened outside of those walls. But walls have a habit of tumbling down. The first walls fell on the afternoon of July 14, 1789, when the French citizens stormed the Bastille. The Bastille was a French prison that was once seen as one of the epitomes of ruling class excess. The government spent enormous amounts of money on it. At the time of the storming, for such a massive building, it only held seven prisoners. The storming of the Bastille kicked off the French Revolution, which would go on to show the world the horrifying dark side of social progress. The revolution soon began to consume the country, with unabated social unrest touching every part of the country. Soon the tide began to turn in the favor of the revolutionaries, who used their newfound, newfound populist power to execute both King Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette, the leaders of their country. Leading this charge of vigilante justice was Maximilien Robespierre, who was the leader of the newfound Committee of Public Safety. Robespierre was obsessed with what he called, quote, the ideal republic a perfect democratic system of government that led to extreme fairness for all citizens. To create this system, Robespierre went on an internal conquest. And that conquest was to bring about extreme justice and punishment for all who opposed the idea of democracy in favor of the old aristocracy. He declared the Committee of Public Safety the government of the revolution and turned to persecute their enemies. In what would become known as the Reign of Terror, Robespierre and his committee unleashed horror upon all that opposed them. Viewing himself as the final judge, Robespierre sentenced over 16,500 of his political opponents to death within the span of around a year. Most of them met their fate by means of public execu execution by guillotine, with bloodthirsty crowds of revolutionaries cheering, cheering all around them. 10,000 more were sentenced to prison without trial. Under any circumstances, this would be seen as appalling. But in late, late 18th century France... It was simply the price of democracy. But all democracies are inherently unstable as well. After infighting amongst the tactics used by Robespierre, he too was swallowed alive by his own revolutionary brothers and overthrown by the Directory, 
a five-person council who viewed him in similar vein to their prior dictators. His head was lopped off in the same location where he was lopped off King Louis XVI about a year earlier. After five years of trying to exercise control over France and expand their military influence, the Directory was soon controlled by a young general named Napoleon Bonaparte. Bonaparte and his executive consulate took complete and sweeping control of the country, with Bonaparte declaring himself France's first emperor. France's first emperor. Bonaparte, using his newfound power, unleashed an all-out blitzkrieg against the rest of the continent, conquering Egypt, Belgium, Holland, Italy, Austria, Germany, Poland, and Spain. Napoleon's merciless campaign lifted the French out of national decline. Until Russia happened. Using a now-famous scorched-earth strategy, the Russian forces outsmarted Napoleon's army by burning all supplies in their vast land as his army advanced. Exhausted, starving, and delirious, Napoleon's army was demolished when the much better prepared Russians led a counter-assault that led to the capture of Paris. Only around 70,000 of the nearly 650,000 troops that marched into Russia made it out alive. After his final defeat at the Battle of Waterloo, Napoleon was exiled, leaving France right back to where it was before, a mid-tier nation destined to never get the respect it so wanted. So, why am I telling you all this? Why should you care? Well, everyone listening, I think this history lesson can teach us a lot of things, actually. First, think about the speed at which this all happened. The French revolutionaries stormed the Bastille in 1789. Napoleon lost at Waterloo in 1815. That's only a 26-year period. Think of all that happened between then. A lot of bad shit, right? Colin Cowherd is a saying that all dynasties, whether they be the French Empire or the Golden State Warriors and quicker than we think they will. And he's right. Second, it's also true that history has a funny way of repeating itself. Trends that happen in society are not new if you know where to look. And an event that happened recently in America was almost impossible for me to shake. The Met Gala is a large social event held in New York City that raises money for the Metropolitan Museum of Arts Costume Institute. It is frequently regarded as the most exclusive and luxurious social event in the United States, with celebrities screaming in from all walks of life to bask in their collective glory. It has always been a mixed bag as to what people think of the Met Gala. We have no royal family in America, which leads us to put celebrities in their place. Not everyone likes this. However, Anna Wintour, the editor-in-chief at Vogue and the chairman of the Met, took steps earlier in the decade to fix this stigma. Anna Wintour thought that the Met Gala should change. A lot of people thought that it was too exclusive, and that it condescended down upon the people. And Anna Wintour agreed with them. So, in response, she decided to make the Met Gala more exclusive. She trimmed the guest list. She doubled the price of a ticket to 30000 per plate. She and the organizers made the themes more provocative. The theme of the Met Gala this year was, quote, In America, a lexicon of fashion. The outfits reflected what Anna Wintour wanted them to reflect, a pure and unbridled hatred of everyone that was not privileged enough to attend the Met Gala. Model Cara Delevingne wore a dress that said, quote, peg the patriarchy, as she was confused as to the fact that she was following with the, par- the patriarchy at the very moment. Channing Tatum probably didn't want to get fucking ass by a strap-on, even if Delevingne is very beautiful. In perhaps the funniest picture ever taken, Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney wore a dress virtue signaling about women's rights to honor the anniversary of women's suffrage. The only catch? In the back of the picture were women, all confined to masks and brushed off the red carpet. Carolyn Maloney did not have to wear a mask because she is above the meager help that helped put on the event. Honor for me, but disgrace for thee. In the most viral viral moment of the evening, fellow Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the so-called socialist congresswoman who hates capitalism, showed up in a dress that said, quote, tax the rich on it. For context, she makes over $170,000 a year, not including any non-government money. She brought the designer of the dress, someone called Aurora James, as her plus one. She's currently being investigated by federal authorities for tax evasion. It turns out that AOC and James's work about the dress being a, quote, powerful message to elevate, quote, woman of color in America is true indeed. What a dress being emblazoned with a message about government taxation having nothing to, having to do with minority women is yet to be explained. Maybe she'll have more time if she goes to prison. Notice the parallels here. A garnished gathering hall filled with elites. 
Hypocrisy of government taxes and wealth. Talks of a patriarchy, whatever that is. The Met Gala is the Palace of Versailles, the earthly Mount Olympus. Anna Wintour is King Louis XIV, the grand organizer of our society's ruling class. Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is Marie Antoinette, the woman whose callous indifference of those below her is apparent at first sight, and quite literally in this case. I don't know who Cara Delevingne is, actually, but I know Bren Franklin was into some weird shit, so maybe she can be his dominatrix or something. None of them were wearing their obedience masks, as mentioned earlier. The Palace of Versailles was inhabited about a hundred years before the storming of the Bastille. The Met Gala began in the early 1970s. So, basically we have 50 years left before our country implodes on itself, we chop our ruling class's heads off, descend into madness, get taken over by a dictator, and then dissolve into relative obscurity once again. Well, okay, maybe not. But the parallels, at least to me, are absolutely astonishing. This is a scary, very scary premonition for the future of our nation, a canary in the coal mine that can no longer be ignored. We may very well be in the early to mid-stages of the second American Revolution. Only in this one, we won't champion our heroes like George Washington and Samuel Adams. Instead, we'll probably end up massacring them. These people are supposed to be the best of us. Remember our friend Louis XIV. These were the bourgeoisie, the ones who were supposedly better than all of us to lead us into a new era of prosperity. Instead, they've rested on their laurels. They've gotten complacent. And, much like the poor 17th and 18th century French, they've shackled our country in a cloak of decadence. Some might label this critique harsh, hysterical even. It could very well turn out to be that. I genuinely hope it is. But one thing has stuck with me that has persevered through it all. Throughout these past 18 months, We've seen the greatest collective stress test be placed on the world, and particularly on America, since either World War II or maybe the Cuban Missile Crisis. Antifa, the border, Black Lives Matter, and COVID are only a few examples that I could pinpoint. The end result for all of them is the same. A complete and colossal failure. Like the big banks in 2008, they couldn't take the pressure. Our experts and the institutions that they both comprise of and protect them have proven to be shams. The American experiment is over. We have failed. In large part, we have failed the stress test because we have elevated the wrong people. A lot of the people who for the longest time were cited as quote experts, myself absolutely being guilty of this, are in fact not impressive at all. They don't deserve that title. We've been praying to false gods. And our country is on a silent and steady decline because of it. It's time we make it louder so that people can at least see it coming. So. Let's take a page from the above playbook and peg the real patriarchy. Part 1. Longevity over legitimacy. I went to Chicago this past weekend. I hadn't been outside the city limits of Austin, pun absolutely intended, with the disastrous music festival starting this week. It's raining down here, and it's, um, well, actually, I don't think it's raining outside now. I, I'm, I'm a hermit, and I have all my shades drawn, so it's, it's dark in here. But um, uh, it was, it, the first day was a mess. They had to push everything back and whatever, but anyway. So I went to Chicago this past weekend. I hadn't been out the city limits of Austin, again, pun absolutely intended, towards the music festival Austin City Limits that starts this weekend more than once for a family party. I love Chicago, even though fraudulent and racist hacks like Lori Lightfoot are trying their best to ruin it at every chance. A good friend of mine plays football out there and invited me to see a game. I took the opportunity and set out last Friday afternoon. My brain, like everyone else's, is really fucking weird. I can't normally read on planes, even though I'm a big reader. There are usually too many distractions. But, surprisingly, this plane ride was completely peaceful. So I sat back, enjoyed the flight, and whipped out the book that I had snagged from my shelf before I left. When the plane landed, I was incredibly disheartened. Ross Duthat has been an op-ed writer at the New York Times for about two decades. The Decadent Society, his latest, was the book that I had read on the plane. Originally published in 2020 and updated after the pandemic of 2021, Duthat touches on a painful topic, particularly for American patriots the overall unimpressiveness of American society. 
This might throw a red flag up for some, and it certainly did for me. What do you mean, quote, overall unimpressiveness of American society? This is America, baby. We put people on the fucking moon. We're back-to-back -back World War champs. We're making electric cars and researching clean energy and all that other cool shit. This dude must be out of his gourd. There's no way this can even be true. But it is true. All of what I just put in that last paragraph is exactly proving Duthat's point. The thesis of his book is that ever since the moon landing in 1969 ended the space race and kicked, off and kicked the commies in the dick once again, America has stayed remarkably similar. Some things have gotten better, certainly. Accessible medical care has gone up, so has overall wealth and GDP per capita. Most, more children don't grow up in poverty. These are all good things. But we also haven't progressed much past them culturally. To demonstrate, Duthat references what was at time the, one of the hottest trends in cinema, science fiction. 2001 Space Odyssey thought that we would be traveling into deep space and have artificial intelligence that could run an entire operation by now. Star Trek imagined us jumping between galaxy to galaxy and teleporting all over the fucking place. It was a really wild time. And, as you can probably tell, none of, neither of those things happened. None of them. To prove this specific point, Duthat references a later version of science fiction, Back to the Future. Back to the Future was filmed in the mid-1980s. Duthat mentions that when Marty McFly goes back in time, he is stunned by how different the era is. When he goes forward... He wouldn't probably experience the same, or he experiences the same. What Duthat points out is that Marty McFly would probably be incredibly disappointed if he showed up in, two, in 2021. Not really much has changed since then when you think about it. Are things slightly better in some areas? Certainly. But far from it. Star Wars movies are still being made. The Simpsons and Family Guy, once remarkably groundbreaking and innovative shows, are now akin to piles of dog puke. They're awful. Where are the new things we were promised? Where's the innovation? Even more startling is where we've regressed to as a society since the mid-1980s. Why is income stratifying even more? Why are wages not going up? Why have we devolved into once again caricaturing and stereotyping people by things such as gender and skin color? Why are we on the verge of a potential civil war again? Why are we literally living in the 1970s again? Like, have you seen the new Silk Sonic video? It might be miraculous, but it's also incredibly telling. America is rotting out at its core. That much is clear. Our empire was great once, but something had changed. No longer do people respect us in the world stage, particularly after our disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan, where we quite literally left all of them with their dicks in their hands. We don't respect our internal leaders anymore, either. Their overall appeal is decreasing. This post is to expose and prove Duthat's point. We are living in a decadent society. To prove that, we need examples. One particularly recent one, in my estimation, shows it better than all others. If anything over these bizarre last years has proven to be decadent, it would be, without question, the Cuomo family. The downfall of one of the most influential and powerful familial institutions in America, particularly over the last three months, have been has been nothing short of astonishing. No one, no matter how cynical of the Cuomo brothers and their weird activities and behaviors, could have predicted such a precipitous fall. It's like something out of a Homer, Homer or Shakespeare, only with bigger cotton swabs and, unfortunately, slightly more death and sexual assault. I sincerely think the poor citizens of Troy would have fared worse facing a legion of Cuomos than the legions of Spartans that eventually pillaged, plundered, and raped their way through the destruction of the impenetrable city. Bossing Say certainly would have fared better, at least in its prime. Last week, younger brother and CNN host Chris Cuomo was outed by his former boss and ABC News executive Shelley Ross for sexually assaulting her during a farewell party more than 15 years ago. In a guest op-ed published in the New York Times, Ross explained the encounter. Cuomo entered the party, hugged Ross, and then full-on Trump grabbed her. Hands full of ass, Cuomo then proceeded to whisper into her ear, quote, I can do this now that you're no longer my boss, end quote. Unfortunately for Cuomo the Younger, an unforeseen complication arose. Ross's husband was seated literally directly right behind him, or her, I should say, as he followed his wife like a buffoon that he is. Ross soon left the party with her husband. Cuomo, rightfully terrified that he so stupidly gave one of the most powerful women in the news a man-made booty lift, emailed Ross to apologize shortly after. The subject line was, quote, Now that I think of it, dot, 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 I am ashamed. End quote. Harder to believe, it actually got worse. In the email, Cuomo stated, quote, 
Though my hearty greeting was a function of me being glad to see you, next time I will remember this lesson, no matter how happy I am to see you. End quote. He also apologized to her, quote, good and noble husband. So, yeah, basically it was that hilarious. Chris Cuomo has since fled to his house in the Hamptons after the incident. He also issued a statement saying, quote, I apologized then and I meant it, end quote. He also failed to address it on his Friday show when he first had the chance to clear the air. That wasn't good enough for Ross. She slammed him, saying that he had clearly, quote, had learned nothing since the incident. Cuomo was recently spotted by the Daily Mail driving his Pontiac Firebird in a two-small t-shirt. He gave a thumbs up to the paparazzi as he sped away from them. But maybe I'm being too hard on Chris Cuomo. He might have learned that behavior through osmosis from someone he loved and trusted. If I had to hazard a guess, it would be from Cuomo the Older. He fondles a lot of women. He killed a lot of older women. And men, too. He even wrote a book about it where he gassed up his own leadership during the New York COVID catastrophe. He regularly bragged about his non-accomplishments and obvious collusion with his brother on tanking primetime cable news show. When the sexual assault allegations against the then-governor arose, Cuomo advised them through him, or him through them. I would have had to guess that now the advice was mutual. Both of the Cuomo brothers are a joke. They're despicable people who constantly lift, uplift themselves while taking a shit on everyone who they consider to be less worthy than them. They condescend on them constantly, daily in the case of Cuomo the Younger. The sad thing is that, even after all this, they still won't probably go down. They won't learn a thing, to echo the former point of Shelley Ross. Andrew Cuomo has stayed remarkably clean after he was removed from office. Chris Cuomo still hasn't, and won't, probably, be fired from CNN. His nightly counterpart, Don Lemon, is also currently facing sexual assault charges for rubbing his undercheese in a random man's face in a gay bar in New York. He probably won't get fired either. This is a perplexing social phenomenon, to say the least. These two people, three if you want to include Lemon, are the epitome of Duthat's thesis. They're not impressive at all. They're the reverse of impressive, actually. They're awful. Not a single one of them adds one iota to the quality of American life. Not a lot of cable news people do. So, in a society that's apparently defined by meritocracy, why are they still relevant? What's keeping them on life support as their lives literally implode all around them? For that answer, we would be wise to turn to Ben Shapiro. In Shapiro's new book, The Authoritarian Moment, he takes aim at America's broken university system and its effects on the students that inhabit them. Shapiro was educated at UCLA and Harvard Law School. He's been through the Leviathan at two of the most prestigious universities in the country. He may be wrong a lot, more so depending on your opinion of him versus others. But no matter what your opinion you have of him, he's objectively an incredibly intelligent and sharp person, which makes his point even more convincing. Shapiro, contrary to his prior attendance at them, is now recommending that a large number of prospective students, no matter their capacity for intelligence, forego the university system for something else. The reason behind this is simple. According to Shapiro, unless you are wanting to enroll, enroll in a university to learn a specific skill or science, specifically STEM, you should likely learn that skill elsewhere. If you go for a soft skill, the likelihood of you working in that soft skill is far less likely than you think it is, particularly as your career evolves. You would be better off with an apprenticeship or a trade, according to him. This might not be a one-size-fits-all, but I can tell you from experience that this is absolutely true. I went to college majoring in finance and minoring in entrepreneurship and innovation while doing a research study in a middle market business. I now sell cloud computing technology to small and medium-sized businesses over a computer and run a small media company that has not made a single cent of revenue and much less a profit on the side. The value of my finance degree, as it currently exists, is zero. It provides no value for me whatsoever other than knowing how to run a budget to decent effect and investing and saving money. I once briefly dated a girl when I lived in Boston whose homemaker mother threw thousands of dollars around by the day in the stock market and made a fortune doing nothing at all. It's a skill that's widely specialized, and that's not widely special. It's not a skill that's widely specialized, if it's specialized at all. I use my minor and research designation much more than my major. I use my mentors and my minor to help me start my business and garner my intellectual property that protects it and play around with tax incentives. I use my research designation in my day job, when I sell to companies of that size. I don't use my major at all. I don't remember a single fucking thing about P-E ratios, sharp coefficients, or the efficient market hypothesis, other than the, that it's complete and utter nonsense. 
I've looked into hiring a financial advisor recently to handle my heavily unstable and volatile sales income, as humiliating as that sounds. I could apply this scenario to literally, quite literally, hundreds of people who went to a college and who I went to college and high school with. If they didn't go into school for STEM or a trade, the odds of them doing what they went to school for, uh, what they went to school for, are about 50-50 at best. My cousin did a bachelor's and master's in biology and graduated in both with above a 3.9 GPA. She now does data analytics for a big data firm. Another cousin of mine went to school to be a politician and is now going to end up with around $400,000 of debt because he wants to go to law school for some fucking reason. My former best friend went to school for biomedical engineering. He now does contract work with the local government of Cincinnati to help him with construction. It's still engineering, but it sure isn't the kind he learned. I once saw a guy the other day who went to school for graphic design or university or like user experience, and now he's an account manager for some bizarre like mid-tier marketing firm that his dad owns. I don't know. So, obviously, the same question we asked about the Cuomo brothers must be asked about our modern-day higher education system. Why are they still relevant? Why do we still shackle ourselves with debt in order to go to some place where we know by both anecdotal and numerical data that we won't get a great or even good return on our investment? Shapiro has an answer for that too. It might not be an actual something, right, like a relevant college degree that can grant you meaning, a meaningful career, but college still offers you one thing in our de- that, in our decadent society, reigns supreme. Credentials. Credentialing is the one and only thing that is keeping colleges and universities afloat, particularly in a time during the pandemic where they've been absolutely pummeled. Ben Shapiro, if no one knew who he was, probably wouldn't have to prove his merit as much as someone else. Why? Well, because he went to UCLA for undergrad and Harvard for law school, of course. It's the fancy pieces of paper, not what comprises the fancy pieces of paper, that get you in the door. My company actively discriminates against most universities in America. In my talent pipeline, the biggest in the organization, we only look at about 30 colleges around the United States. All other companies do this as well, but approximately none of them make it public. But what's more interesting is what keeps you there. Credentialing may get you in the door, but another tactic is enforced within the university system that helps people keep, both keep people in check and in their place. Tenure. Tenure takes place when a university, which is most likely a public institution, decides to bring a member of the staff, usually a professor, on full-time without even the possibility of them getting fired. They're employed for life, no matter how much their skills decay or their rhetoric becomes outdated. None of that matters once you have that proverbial Willy Wonka-style golden ticket. Once a credentialed person gets into that gated institution, all that credentialed person has to do is hold on just a little longer to get that ticket that will set them up for life. This is why you see so many professors across the country, particularly in the liberal arts and social sciences, caving to the pressure of the mobs of academic students on social issues and things of the like. They don't want to even entertain the possibility of getting their tenure revoked. So, instead, they decide to go along with it. Sometimes they even join in. This is becoming more and more popular. Tenure professors across the country are getting more and more involved with activism, which is dividing campuses internally and striking fear into the hearts of a large portion of students. They do this because they realize that they will have unlimited control if they do. They use that lever to their advantage, and they use it well. This is what leads our modern, to our modern ruling class and aristocracy. But people with tenure can still be fired. This is a problem for our modern-day aristocrats. They can't just make themselves tenured. They have to make themselves permanent. Told you guys it's going to be long. <laughs> Part two, create a new caste system. Starting my adult career in the middle of the biggest public health crisis the world has seen in 100 years wasn't necessarily optimal. In fact, it was quite disruptive. The most common and reasonable complaint I heard constantly from my fellow entry-level co-workers and compatriots throughout my time in that position before my move to Austin was the lack of face-to-face contact we got with both one another and with the broader organization as a whole. There was no bumping into anyone by the water cooler or leaning over the side of the cubicle. Everything had to be intentional. 
If it wasn't, it just didn't happen. My company as it stands is also in a time of tremendous transformation. Even for a corporate behemoth that typically moves incredibly slow, the pace of change inside is quite rapid. Due to this fact, in my 16-month tenure, I've had a total of eight, eight, managers. Not exactly the most stable structure. But there was a catch. While I've had a good amount of managers, they've all been excellent except for one, and that one guy was my manager for a grand total of about 15 minutes, and he sucked during those 15 minutes too, so I'm very, very glad he was the shortest tenured one. When I moved on from my former position into my promotion in June, I made an attempt to stay in touch with all my previous managers to continue those relationships. They were primarily work relationships, of course, but I also genuinely respected all of them. They're good people, nice people. So in typical hashtag work from home fashion, I set up cadences with all of them to be repeated monthly on Zoom. And it was in a conversation with one of these managers recently that blew my mind. This manager was my second, and the one that I've liked so far, or, or that I've so far liked the most. This is not to dump on any of my other managers, not at all. Well, except for the one that I just named like a couple seconds ago. But this is a person who I truly respected both in and out of the virtual workplace. He had a shit together, to put it mildly. He demands excellence while simultaneously showing empathy. He's whipped by his wife. He says fuck a lot. There are things that I, these are things, all things that I aspire to be one day. Although I will certainly have a say in what I will be whipped by. So naturally, I swung towards him. During our most recent cadence last week, we got into a topic of conversation that we had frequently had, that of people avoiding responsibility. I had just undergone a presentation of my book of business to management and thought I had done relatively well. I worked hard on it, and I thought that it showed. But something bothered me about a lot of my colleagues working the same job. They just didn't seem to give a fuck. They didn't appear confident in their projections. There were errors in grammar, punctuation, and spelling, all things that make the internet blogger and me want to stab them in the eye with a dull spoon. I told this and expressed my feelings of frustration to my old manager, who, re who, recip who reciprocated my feelings by dropping a bunch of fucks and lazies all over me. The affirmation was almost orgasmic. We fed off of one another for minutes of our 30 minutes together. It was awesome. But after my affirmation, my old manager said one thing that struck me. Quote, Sam, how many times have you ever heard of a manager getting fired from here? End quote. It was a good question. Remember my points earlier. I have been in my current company for about 16 months. I have had eight managers. But none of them have gotten fired. They've gotten moved around, sure, but never fired. My old manager had been around the block, though. He'd worked in multiple roles throughout the company for a grand total of eight years which made him one of the longest tenured employees I'd ever personally known. His answer stunned me when he, asked, when he asked the same question to himself. One. One manager in a company of well over 100,000 people in a division, sales, that supposedly relied 100% on your performance, and he had only known of one manager that had gotten fired in eight years of massive corporate transformation. Something immediately sounded off about that. I've known a lot of employees that have left the company or gotten fired before performance, but only one manager in an entire division of a massive company at any level of management had ever gotten whacked. My manager continued. He sped on about this point, saying that the inevitably obvious point that the reason that people end up getting fired is in a large part due to poor management. It was the classic Leif Babin and Jocko Willing principle of, quote, no bad teammates, only bad leaders. It was extreme ownership personified. If you're the leader of anything, it's always your fault. Always. There's little to no getting around that once you adopt that responsibility that you also adopt what comes with it, including the possibility of failure. But, curiously, this seemed to not apply to my company. This thought then immediately triggered a statement mentioned by our friend who made this appearance in my last post. Vivek Ramaswamy. Vivek Ramaswamy is no exaggeration here, seriously probably the most widely successful businessman I'd ever heard of in my life. He is in his mid-30s and has already founded as many companies as I've had managers. That number is eight, if you remember. He went to both Harvard and Yale, worked at Goldman Sachs, managed a hedge fund, and has worked in the incredibly perilous fields of biotech and pharma, while simultaneously competing against some of the biggest titans corporate America has to offer. What the man has done is nothing short of extraordinary. I'm proud he's from my home state. He's the epitome of the American dream. 
But Vivek Ramaswamy is also something else. Vivek Ramaswamy is a traitor. He is currently disgusted by America's ruling business class, where much of our modern-day aristocracy resides. The reason for this is that he has pointed out a very inconvenient fact. Much like we have talked about in earlier sessions, these people are far from impressive. It's not that the companies are bad companies. They're just run by completely mediocre people. Dubbing these people, these group of folks the managerial class, Ramaswamy carefully iterates how, based on some prior experience of level of competence, power brokers at large capitalist institutions were able to cement themselves at the top of the corporate hierarchy. To get into a position of management, you first have to be excellent in what you manage. To be a sales manager, you normally have to be a good salesman first. To be an operations manager, you have to know first how to run a P&L and understand process flows. To be a manager of a pharmacy, you need to know everything there is to know about the, quote, legal drug business and the crucial viability of locking tide pods up behind a metal fence. In short, you have to be great at something first in order to be a manager of multiple great things. But remember, greatness has a hefty cost. You have to sacrifice a lot to be truly great at something, particularly in an organization where it's truly rewarded. Now take that to an even further level. You want to double that, in theory, when you become a manager. Not only do you want to become great, you want to manage greatness two levels above where you currently were. And that comes at an incredibly hefty toll. People who want these types of positions have to want it for some reason or another. That reason is generally to gain what managers gain, as proven in a microcosm by my, by my manager. Unchecked power in the corporate structure. When you become a manager, particularly in sales, your job security seemingly goes through the roof. Your income does as well, at least your stable income. Those are very attractive things to anyone, much more so to someone that had that, who had to, at that point, sacrifice a great portion of their life to get that something. But something happens when you remove yourself from where you're supposed to be great at. You simply become less great. Part of this, to defend the managerial class, is warranted. A sales manager cannot be on the front lines closing deals while they have several other sales executives to manage. Therefore, they get stale. They lose their grip on reality and the corresponding touch that is necessary to place, it, to place it with. They also do this because they do not want to do that anymore. It's simply not them. They have bigger ambitions, bigger goals. In my organization, and I'm assuming in many others, managers are also considered something else much like what we said before with everyone else that we named. The experts. Rightfully so in some cases. But can you be an expert in anything if you don't do anything that you were formerly an expert in? I would argue that that's a long shot in the very best possible scenario. But these folks still outwardly claim and are lauded upon as being the, quote, experts. Why is that? Well, because of power, of course. The expert class, managerial class, ruling class, whatever you want to call them, claim these things in order to leverage it for longevity and staying power. Remember our example of the tenured professor. The tenured professor is originally a smart person. Then they get granted tenure and their abilities no longer matter. They're important, but they can be far from competent. The same exists with our experts. They claim expertise simply due to them being around for a long time. There could be some merit in that, certainly but it's far from normal. This is constantly used as a shield. Whenever someone questions one of them, they just point to that one thing that got them there and tell you to shut up. You're not allowed to question them, you see. As a matter of fact, how dare you do so? They're the, quote, experts after all. They did some obscure thing a long time ago, if you didn't know. What have you ever done? Consistently do one thing for a long time? Fuck you. That's irrelevant to how smart I am, how powerful I am, and how unworthy you are. Let's think back to Chris Cuomo. Chris Cuomo is a fucking dumbass. He's boorishly unintelligent. He also plays grab-ass with powerful women in the news media. But Chris Cuomo also went to Yale and had his, pop, his father as the governor of one of the most powerful states in America. He's an anchor on a primetime cable news show. So when Chris Cuomo shames people for not wanting to get a strange chemical cocktail embedded into your body, I'm vaccinated just so I virtue signal to keep you here a while longer, he can get away with it. When his counterpart, Don Lemon, demands an inquisition into Trump voters because of, like, white supremacy or something, no one in his, sane, in his same caste system bats an eye. Don Lemon is, quote, impressive, according to them. And it's unfortunate for everyone else. 
Dr. Anthony Fauci is not an epidemiologist. Anthony Fauci is a bureaucrat. He's not a medical professional. He's an elite. He's literally gotten almost everything about the pandemic wrong at least once, ranging from vaccines to masks to school closings to business guidelines to how long the pandemic is actually going to last. It's over, especially if you're vaccinated, by the way. He's fucked up many more disease breakouts than just COVID, ranging from AIDS to Ebola. We should not be listening to Dr. Fauci anymore. Any rational person who values true competence, as we all should, would be stupid to do so. But yet we still do so. Just because a person did something once or held a certain position or was at a certain company doesn't mean a damn thing. The collective does not define the individual. Any attempt to do that, in any situation, is a massively flawed failure of assessment. This does not prove confidence, or competence for that matter. It only proves credentials, which, in reality, does a shitty job of declaring anything remarkable when the person doesn't match that remarkability. So, our experts have swapped out legitimacy for longevity and have found a way to create respective casts based on false presuppositions of competence and confidence. But there is one more step in order for them to truly become dominant, to truly topple America. For the best and most terrifying example of this phenomenon, we turn to a similarly, destruction, similarly destructive Faucian bureaucrat. Part 3. Enforce your, quote, expertise on everything else. Not many people know who John Banzaf is. He's mostly combined in the halls of a very few niched institutions, dragged down in legend and lore. But to those niched institutions, John Banzaf is a legend. John Banzaf has long been one of our tenured professors, teaching at the George Washington University Law School. He was a career academic, his job being to mold the minds of ambitious prospective law students with how to carry out justice in the modern world. This is, on its face, a noble profession. People with genuine desire to help young people make their way in the world should be commended for the effort they put in to do so. But, Jan but John Banzeff was not genuine. He did not want to help young people. He just wanted power. John Banzeff became both famous and infamous, depending on how you feel about his tactics, for what is called, quote, public interest law. In this position, John Banzeff positioned himself in the, as the great moral authority over the whole of society. Whenever he didn't like a tactic that someone deployed, he would immediately use the power of the law, combined with his young and ambitious students, to pummel people into submission in order to get them to bow to his will. In Tucker Carlson's new book, The Long Slide, Carlson declared that Banzev was the most horrific person he had ever interviewed, ever interviewed, placing just above murderers and rapists that he interviewed in a prison in Arkansas. At least they had a degree of self-awareness, he wrote. They weren't thinking that they were making the world a better place. Banzev thought the opposite, and he thought it every time he deployed these tactics. Banzev's strategy was expedited by using lawsuits to specifically target and destroy anyone who he deemed to be irredeemable. He went after fast food companies such as McDonald's, saying that their soft drink machines cause childhood obesity. He went after local dry cleaners for not being diverse enough. Several of his high-profile targets were run by Korean immigrants. He went after universities for not having enough spaces for all religions to have, quote, adequate space to practice their religion. He was incredibly successful and made millions and millions of dollars because of it. He didn't care how many lives he destroyed. As long as he won, nothing else mattered. What is scary about people like John Banzev is not that they simply use cheap tactics of their profession to get ahead and exploit weak people. That's a detestable act, but it misses the true point. The point lies in a question that very few people asked him during the French, his French Revolution-esque reign of terror. What right do you have to do any of this? There's a legitimate argument about John Banzev is, that John Banzev is an expert in the law. I would have a hard time arguing against that. What about gender parity at universities? Prayer space? 
responsibility as it pertains to soft drink dispensers? John Banzev knows nothing about these things. Nothing at all. He wasn't doing this to, quote, better public policy. He was doing this simply just because he wanted to. He wasn't, quote, practicing the law. He made a mockery of the profession. He caricatured and distorted it so that it would only benefit him in the end game. And this is the final straw that will break America's back if we let it. Not only are our experts incompetent and tenured, but now they're trying to impose that expertise on all other areas of life that they have no justification whatsoever of intervening in. Not only are they not good at the thing they're supposed to be good at, they're even more horrible at doing the other things that other people are supposed to be good at. This cross-pollination of fake expertise is explosively dangerous, and there is no greater example than the one that I'm about to describe. General Mark Milley currently serves as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff for the United States government and military. In holding this position, Milley is also the most powerful man in the American military. It's an incredibly important position. It's also an unelected position. The person is appointed directly by the President of the United States, the most powerful man in the world. He took office in 2019, right when shit started to hit the fan in our country. As the shit really started to hit the fan in November of 2020, Mark Milley made a phone call. A phone call that would later reveal itself to be one of the most consequential phone calls in modern American history. The person that Mark Milley called was a man by the name of Li Xiaocheng, the chief of the Joint Staff Department of the Central Commission for the People's Republic of China. Xiaocheng is Milley's counterpart in her great, greatest foreign adversary. They have spoken many times, as they should have. But this time was different. Mark Milley called General Xiaocheng in order to inform him of the state of the United States politics. At that time, the waters were roiling, to say the least, if you can remember. Milley wanted to ensure his counterpart of that, so we uttered this statement, quote, I want to assure you that the American government is stable and that everything is going to be okay. We are not going to attack or conduct any kinetic operations against you. If we're going to attack, I'm going to call you ahead of time. It's not going to be a surprise. End quote. To say that my mouth dropped to the floor when I heard this would be the most drastic understatement I had ever uttered in my life. The lead merit military official in the entire country, one of the most powerful men in the world, had revealed that he would rather collude with his number one foreign adversary than defend his own country. According to Bob Woodward and Robert Costa, the authors of the book Peril, which documented that exchange first, Milley had also voiced concern that President Trump, then President Trump, I should say, could, quote, go rogue, and he, that he, quote, never knew where the president's trigger point was. President Trump, whether you like him or take him at his word or not, slammed Milley after the leak, saying that he was never considering attacking China at any point during his presidency. The news media, of course, bashed their own heads into a wall, this depending on who they supported politically. Our political, quote, experts and operatives did the same. But they all missed the point. One thing is true above all of this. What Mark Milley did, if proven true, we're still innocent and proven guilty in this country, contrary to all detractors, is treason. In fact, it's the most outwardly treasonous act that I think I've ever seen in my entire life. There are a lot of conservative-leaning conspiracy theorists, or at least people that get labeled as such, that have complained of a deep state in recent years. But if this charge against General Milley is proven to be true... This is the very definition of a deep state. An unelected bureaucrat like Mark Milley deliberately undermined our democracy run by elected officials in order to do what he thought was best. That's not a republic. That's an authoritarian dictatorship. It's like something out of Apocalypse Now. It's horrifying. Let's take for a moment and use a hypothetical to dissuade anyone who disagrees from this. Let's say for the sake of argument that President Trump did order a military strike against China. If we're taking General Milley at his word, he would have told his Chinese counterpart, General, General Zhao Cheng, that we did. So let's ask ourselves, how many men's death would be he would be responsible for? What if any collateral damage? What if a nuclear strike was ordered in response? What if a war broke out? It's like looking into Pandora's box, only with cruise missiles coming out instead of the vices of humanity. This deed, if indeed done, cannot go unpunished. But Mark Milley, like John Banzeff, has the same problem. He likes power too much. 
Mark Milley is not a very impressive guy, which is further buttressed by that lazy phone call, again, if true. But he has longevity, and he is too tendered into the military establishment for him to be easily moved. It, frankly, I think it's impossible at this point. This is an envious position from all perspectives. It's no wonder why people get so easily corrupted when they're graced with such privilege. Mark Milley knew that, but so did the mob. And they soon began to use it to control him. Never in all my years would I think the that the United States military would cave to the mob. It seems so dystopian, so far-fetched, so Orwellian. But, unbelievably, it did. Mark Milley, the lead military official in this country, has openly admitted to teaching critical race theory to his constituents, boasting about how he wants to, quote, understand white rage, whatever that means. The question, again, needs to be asked. Who in the fuck is Mark Milley? What in the world does he know about, quote, right rage or, quote, systemic racism, two impossibly broad terms that no one can seem to define, even the experts in the subject? The answer, of course, is nothing. Mark Milley's job, literally by definition, is to command the defense of our country. His job is to prevent people from being killed and to kill anyone who attempts to do so on our end. It's that black and white. It's that simple. Let's keep going on how our aristocracy is spreading their false expertise. In the aftermath of the George Floyd murder, the American public health crisis declared racism a, a quote, public health crisis. Racism is in no way, shape, or form a disease. That doesn't mean that it's not condemnable in all forms, because it is. But there's something that off, that's off, in my estimation, when you declare something like this when you're in the middle of the actual biggest public health crisis the world has ever seen in over a century. But that didn't matter to the APHA. You're a racist if you don't describe their vague forms of, quote, equity, which, in and of itself, as we've discussed, is a form of racism. It's funny how these things work. Let's keep going on this. In the aftermath of that summer of societal change and unrest, so many people in mainstream Hollywood found the nerve to step up and say something. Not just about racism, but about climate change and police department budgets as well. I take responsibility, they said. For what? I ask. What do these people know about literally any of this stuff? Their job is to play pretend on screen. It's hard because every job has its challenges. But playing pretend on screen has nothing to do with pretending you know a damn thing about COVID-19 or other infectious diseases, much less trying to pass racism off as one. These people have handlers for their money. What in the world would they possibly know about the allocation of funds into a police budget? As a matter of fact, how many of these folks have actually been in trouble with the police? How many travel with police security? Will they shed them then? The answers to all these questions are obvious. They're not experts. They have no clue at all as to what they're doing. I could go on, but I would both anger both myself and you all with too much if I did. The point of all of this is as such. When the aristocracy of a society starts to think that they know everything about everything, shit hits the fan. It leads to a complete erosion of the social fabric. It runs roughshod over cultural humility and curiosity. True intellectualism, what really sustains a society, runs dry, which therefore leads the fervor that sustains it beyond us to the current day and begins to wither away and rot. This happened with the French, and it's beginning to happen with America. Here's how it works, both then and now. Fake expertise begins to erode the societal order, which results in civil unrest and uprising, see, uprising followed by swift actions by incompetent leader to try to fix it. See COVID lockdowns, vaccine inequity mandates, the storming of the Capitol building, anti-vaxxers, violent BLM riots, etc. These do nothing but only reinforce the stupidity of the people running the show. They can't fix the simple problems, and they overcorrect to try to solve the more complicated problems, which obviously lead to both becoming worse. Eventually, their non-expertise begins to corrupt the society so badly that it inevitably fails. Then, we will not have a society left. The reason for this will be because there are no truly smart people running our society. This is the whole, quote, internal French genocide until Napoleon comes around and fucks everything worse thing. The worst part is that the French and us will never know. We were adrift this whole time. It's just that no one ever woke up. The rise of our society's, quote, expert class is a telling one. 
it means that there are less people that we can depend on for actual expertise. When the wrong people get elevated, the unelevated people always suffer disproportionately. When true competence is demonized and devalued, false competence arises to finish the job by ending all progress in totality. The events that have happened in our country recently were not the murderers of the American dream in society. They were the coroner. They just arrived to clean up the shit before the rest of it fell on top of them. Maybe I'm being too cynical. Maybe I should cut them some more slack. I probably should. But I think it's always wise to ask the ultimate question, what if I'm wrong, as well. Because if that's true, and we don't, we will end up getting pegged by the patriarchy. And not in the hot Cara Delevingne way. Okay, so that is your daily dose of depression from yours truly. So, I don't know. Something to think about, guys. So I know I've been, I've been riffing recently. I have some ideas for some you know, stuff in the future. It's actually the end of the year. It's, you know, it's October now, so I only have two months left. Of, we only have two months left of 2021. So I'm going to try to get some good posts in, get some ideas going, finish out strong. So hope you have a great week, guys. Own the day. Open your mind. Thanks for listening. Have a good one. Stopping, hopping like a rabbit When I take the Nina Ross, you know I got to have it I lay back in the cut, retain myself Think about the shit and I think it well How can I make some grip? And how should I make that nigga straight?